Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. Isn't that good? All right, want to greet all of you who are worshiping with us online. We're so glad to get, we're going to have so much fun this Christmas. How many need to have a little fun this Christmas? I mean, it's been two years, guys. Come on. Uh, so Dia de los Tres Reyes, Three Kings Day, where it's kind of a shout out to our Hispanic and Latin uh, members and friends at the church. I've learned so much about it. But part of the, what we're going to do first, I got, I got to do this. I decided this is a year. I've been here 18 years. We're going to decide the greatest Christmas movie of all time. Because many of you have been barking at me for years, and we're just gonna we're gonna solve it, okay? So we're gonna put a big QR code up on the screen if we could. There it is. So get, grab your cameras, okay? Or you can go to menti.com and you can enter that code. So let's do it. I'm gonna capture that one there. All right, bam. And if you get, you'll go to. That should take you to the menti uh, poll, and there should be. My phone is loading really slow. I love technology when it works. But you know, take you to the poll, and there's five movies. We're going to do so sweet 16 of movies. And I'm telling you, if Die Hard makes the list, somebody in the staff is getting fired. I just I want to let that out there. But you go there, and you, uh, you click on the mentee. Is everybody, anybody getting there? Yeah. And you hit next. And so the five choices for this week are Elf, Santa Claus is Coming to Town, Little Drummer Boy, The Preacher's Wife, or Frosty a Snowman. So the two, the six highest each week, they're going to go to Christmas Eve. So we're going to solve this. I'm voting mine right now. Santa Claus is coming to town. It's the greatest Christmas movie of all time. Okay. Um, and I think, see, oh, so what, oh, Elf is leading. I'm the only one that voted for Santa Claus is coming. What's wrong with you people? Come on. All right. We'll, 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 we'll look at that at the end of the sermon today, too. We'll do that each week, okay? And on Christmas Eve, we're putting it to rest. Garfield Memorial's deciding the greatest Christmas movie. All right. You got a packet when you came in. This is your homework, okay? This is Dia de los Tres Reyes. I just want to run through it with you. Um, again, in our much of the Latin community, uh, Mari and her family are over in our children's wing right now teaching the kids on uh, what Three Kings Day is. Uh, Scott and I interviewed a family from Uruguay that's at our South Euclid campus, and uh, we just found out what a major celebration this is. So we're going to go through it together. So if you open up your book list, okay, class, you'll see on one side it says what we can do in general, and then some things to do with children and grandchildren. I just want to run through this with you real quick. First, um, we put an educator resource guide in here from the El, Mus El Museo del Barrio in New York City. New York City has the largest Three Kings celebration in the United States. And so everything you ever want to know about Three Kings, the cultures, etc., it's in that educator's guide. So read through it. There will be a test on Christmas Eve. Um, and secondly, if you set up a nativity set, I do. I got some of mine out on the cafe. Um, when people celebrate Three Kings in the Latin community, 
When they set up their nativity set, they do it in a particular way. They don't put baby Jesus in the nativity until Christmas Eve, and they don't add the three kings until January 6th. So use your nativity set as a teaching tool. We've got some great recipes in here. These happen to be from Puerto Rico. Okay, so I, I, I actually took my first shot at cooking a pernil. Uh, I did a three-pound one because uh, I'm going to do a seven-pound one on Christmas, and my experiment went well. I followed the recipes given to us uh, by some of our Puerto Rican members. There's Puerto Rican eggnog. What you put in that is none of my business, okay? All right. Um, so number four, wait until January 7th to take down your Christmas tree or Christmas lights or ornaments. And in the Latin community, they never take down their decorations until after Three Kings Day on January 6th. Now, if you're like me and you don't take your lights down until like April, then it, it doesn't count. But if you're the Martha Stewart type that kind of takes everything down December 27th, wait until January 7th this year. Let's, let's uh, uh, join with our Latin brothers and sisters. And then five, this is spoiler alert for my Christmas Eve sermon, but follow the example of the kings two ways. One, look up. See, if the kings didn't look up, they'd never seen the star. There's a lot to look down on in the world. We're grieving for families today in Michigan with the loss of yet another gun violence in our schools. There's so much to keep us down, but Christmas is a time for us to look up and see that there is a light shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So if you're worshiping online, let's make a commitment right through January 6th. We've got some great stuff lined up to be in worship um, all, all through the Christmas season. And then finally, and very importantly to us, we're doing a major uh, Christmas offering, a second mile offering this year, a Christmas campaign, if you will. Most of you have gotten letters on that, emails. We're, we're, it's our Follow the King Christmas offering. I got to tell you folks, Terry and me and all of us, we're putting on a good face. These two years have been hell. These, are, these have been the most difficult years in my 31 years of ministry. And there are churches that have closed in the last two years. 25% is estimated of pastors in America quit and left ministry in the last two years. We've got a major labor shortage that's going to hit the church in America with an overabundance of buildings and a lack of, of pastors. And so Garfield has been shining the light. You guys have been given so faithfully. The Afghan refugees, they, they were saying, it's like $1,500 furnished as a whole home. You guys have already furnished like seven homes. It, you, your, your generosity is amazing, but we need, we need your help this year. I had an epiphany on epiphany. Um, that's, I, I, I impressed myself. Um, but the three kings, what I realized, you know, in Christmas we celebrate a gift exchange, right? The kings didn't do a gift exchange. They just gave, right? And so we need your help. We hope you'll pay attention to our Christmas offering this year. All right, next page, real quick, and then I'll get into the message. Um, if we're celebrating with our kids or grandchildren, what can we do? Teach them the message of the three kings and the, the power of giving and why it's so important part of our life. Why do we give to the church? Why do we give to the work of God and the world and to the poor? Teach our children about that. Two, take time to teach about different cultures. Uh, the problem with our world is people can't get beyond their own four walls of family or culture or political party. This is an opportunity for us to celebrate Christmas, even we have our own traditions, but to widen the circle, to make room for others and teach about cultures. The Three Kings was so amazing. When I talked to the family in Uruguay, they told me, some of our Puerto Rican members, they said that the kings always represent all the cultures of the world. So one was from Europe, and one was from Asia, and one was from Africa, and it was symbolizing all the cultures of the world coming and bowing down 
to the King of Kings. And we're today, where they're teaching over there, all of our children are getting Three Kings books. Um, grades three and under on the Three Kings, grades four and five. Uh, a wonderful story about the other wise man. It's a fictional story, but a great message about following Christ. So if you've got kids, sit down and read with them. And here, you're not, this is the big one. You see number four, number five. Number four, I know it's December 26th, the day after Christmas. Don't miss December 26th. We're just going to have one service at 10 a.m. right in here. We're going to bring all our kids down. We're going to tell chronologically the Christmas story. I'll be talking about here. Scott will be talking about South Euclid. And rumor has it that the three kings are coming to Garfield with live camels. Where can you get a picture with a camel on, on Christmas? Come out on December 26th. And then one of the things I learned in a Puerto Rican culture, that you heard them talk about shoeboxes. They get shoeboxes, they fill them with grass or with oats, and they leave them by the bed, the children do. And the camels come that night, they leave three glasses of water for the kings. The camel eat the grass, and the grass is like thrown all over the room because the camels are messy. And the box is filled with uh, candy, and there are gifts left. Consider doing that. I got a book. We got a, at the very end is kind of instructions on how to do that. Uh, maybe you want to add that to your Christmas holiday this year with your kids. So this is going to be fun. So getting into the message, all right, um, we're looking at all the kings in the Bible who got it wrong. And then on Christmas Eve, these kings who got it right. The first king we're looking at is Saul. You heard what Kyle read for us today. That's the story when Saul is rejected as the king of Israel. Now, we should have known these kings would get it wrong, because 1 Samuel 8, if you read it, it's a pivotal, pivotal chapter in the Bible. It's where Israel has been brought out of Egypt. They've brought into the promised land. And in Deuteronomy, God says to the people, I'm worried about you when you go into the land and eat of the milk and honey, when you build houses and you live in them, when you make your coins of silver and gold. I'm worried that you'll forget the Lord your God who brought you out. And sure enough, in 1 Samuel 8, they did. Because they start looking at all the other nations of the world, Egypt and Assyria, and they say, hey man, they got these great charismatic leaders. They got kings. We want one of those. And Samuel goes to God and says, God, the people are rejecting me. You're a prophet. They want a king. And God says, oh no, Samuel. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And he says, I tell you what. Give them a king if they want one, but tell them what's going to come with it. There's going to come uh, political division. Read it. It's all in there. There's going to come arrogance. There's going to come a quest for power and greed and corruption and division and conspiracy theories. It's all coming. And he said, if you want a king, that's what comes with it. And then when you have your king and you call out to me, I will not answer you. It's really, really relevant stuff. And so the people, Samuel tells them what's going to happen. You know, the people say, that's all right. We want to be like the other nations. And Israel begins to unwind. And Saul is anointed the first king. And if you read Saul's story, he's just a spiral of a man spiraling into depression to the point that here God says he's rejecting Saul from being king over Israel. What happened to Saul? If you read 1 Samuel 10, when Saul was chosen king, he was kind of a modest guy. In fact, Samuel called the crowds together. He was going to anoint Saul as king, and Saul was over hiding in the luggage. And now look at, fast forward to 1 Samuel 15. Now, did you see what it said? He was setting up a monument to himself. 
And he was doing it uh, at Carmel. At Carmel, he was setting up a monument for himself. Carmel, and some of you have traveled with me and Terry to Israel, Mount Carmel is one of my favorite places. It's up high and wonderful breeze. And but this was a place where Elijah, remember, had the battle with the prophets? And he said to the people, how long are you going to limp in two directions? If God's God, follow him. If these other pagans are God, follow them. And it was a place of decision. And now Saul is at Carmel setting up a monument to himself. What, what's going on here? Saul, is he's, what he's done, he's lost a sense of significance. Okay? When, when, you, when you are not getting your significance from God, you tend to try to find it from yourself. Can you imagine the irony of this guy who was appointed king and now he's building monuments to himself? He's lost a sense of significance. That's one of the dangers of, of humanism, you know, over elevating human nature as almost something to be worshipped. This has happened through history. Just a, just a few quotes of that if you read it. Uh, one person said, man is free if he owes his existence to himself. Who said that? Karl Marx. Walt Whitman wrote this, One self I sing, a simple separate person. Man can be as big as he wants to be. No problem of human destiny is beyond human beings. JFK. Anne Rand recently said, Man's destiny is to be a self-made soul. And a, a contemporary philosopher, E.O. Wilson, in our country said, Humanity will be positioned godlike to take control of its own ultimate fate. You know what I learned a long time ago? Self-made men, self-made women, usually end up worshiping their creator. I've never met a self-made person. If somebody comes up and says, I'm a self-made man, you know what I say? Do you have a belly button? Because if you got one, you're not self-made. Right? And, and we tend to, this is, this is a problem that we have when we lose a sense of significance. Paul, Saul now had been blessed by God, but, he, but he's trying to, you know, bless himself. He's, he's trying to build monuments to himself. And when that becomes your identity, I heard one preacher once say this. The problem with, like, making work or achievement your identity, it says if, if you're successful, it'll go to your head. And if you're not, it'll go to your heart. And you'll always be looking for something you can't find. And he wrote, faith in Christ gives you an identity that's not in work or accomplishment. And that gives you insulation against the weather changes. If you're successful, you stay humble. If you're not successful, you have some balance. Work is a great thing when it's a servant instead of a Lord. I read, um, a, I saw a documentary, don't ask me why I watched it. On Arthur Miller, he was a great American playwright. You remember Death of the Salesman? Some of us had to read that growing up. And I was listening to Arthur Miller. He's, he's long, he's passed away. But it was an a interview they gave, and he talked about that he quit believing in God as a teenager. And as the story went on, he dealt with bouts of depression. He went through two failed marriages. And he said this at the end of the interview, and I, I had to pause it so I could write it all down. He said, I feel like I've carried around this sense of judgment. <clears throat> I could not escape it. I still felt like I needed to prove myself to others, to have somebody tell me that I was okay, that I was acceptable, that I was approved of. He had one of his Christian friends after he died said, Arthur replaced the God of Christ with the God of audience approval. 
he was still looking to the day he died for someone to tell him that he was accepted, that he was accepted and not under judgment, and he never, ever found it. See, if we keep trying to build monuments to ourselves, we're, we're, we're going to come up empty. We'll always feel like we're not measuring up. But if we receive the acceptance of God, the approval of God, that can, that can you know, change our lives. That's a game changer. Paul Tillich, a great theologian, said salvation is accepting that you're accepted, right? Your, your best is blessed by God. So what happens when we have this lack of self-significance, as Saul did, where he starts to spiral down? It leads to self-deception, always. When we lose significance, it, it, it ends up making us lie to ourselves. I, I, I love the story, you know, basically what had happened it's, these are Old Testament time. God sends Saul to go in to fight the Amalekites. The Amalekites were extremely violent people. They practiced genocide. Um, they had infant more, uh, sacrifices. And God is rendering divine justice. But he's saying, Saul, you're going to go in there. But what you're going to do is you're not going to go to war the way most nations go to war. Most nations go to war to do what? To enrich themselves. But this, this is not going to happen. You're not going to take cattle. You're not going to take money. You're not going to take slaves. You're not doing any of that. And then Samuel shows up. And did, did you hear that passage? He shows up, and, he, and, and Saul says, I've, I've obeyed the Lord. I've followed the commandments. And Samuel goes, why am I hearing sheep bleeding in my ears? See, Paul, Saul is in complete self-denial and self-deception. Um, I was thinking about that. My wife, when we were in seminary, I was out in New Jersey, and we'd drive home from the holidays, right? And uh, we had an old beat-up Bronco back then, and we were driving home uh, from New Jersey, and all of a sudden, the car started making a funny sound, and Terry goes, hey, what's going on? That car doesn't sound right. I said, everything's fine. I just turned up the radio. <laughs> and then I broke down about an hour later on the Pennsylvania Turnpike in some deserted area. Why did I do that? Self-denial. Because, see, I grew up in a family with the grandparents and uncles and that. These guys, man, their car style sounded funny. They just pull off the side of the road, open the hood, and go, oh, it's the hooky dooky hooky thing. And I got three of those in the trunk. Like, I open the hood, I don't know what anything is. And I didn't, I, I'm not guys, well, it smells funny, I don't know. So what do you do? Turn up the radio. You ever heard, and we do that too often. You ever heard the term turning a blind eye? You heard that expression? You know where it comes from? All you history majors, 1801, English naval battle. Horatio, um, what's the guy's name? Horatio Nelson. He was a stubborn guy, loved war, going to battle all the time. And they were in a naval battle, and the British three ships went aground, and the overseer of the entire vice admiral is signaling to Horatio Nelson to, to cease battle. But Nelson's flagman's telling him, hey, we got to cease the battle. And Horatio Nelson was blind in one eye. So you know what he'd do? He'd put the telescope up to his blind eye and say, I can't see the order. I can't see the order. I can't see the order. And that's where he got the expression, turn a blind eye. That's human, that's human nature, I think. We've got one eye open and one eye shut. And God sends us smoke signals, and we tend to put the telescope up to the blind eye, right? And in this self-deception and self-denial. How do you know if you're in self-deception, de self-denial? How do you know that? Couple signs. Here's the first sign. Blame shifting. It's everyone else's fault, right? 
In fact, you read that passage, it said when Samuel, we can put that up there. When Samuel came to Saul, Saul said to him, may you be blessed by the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of cattle that I hear? And what does Saul say? They brought them. Like some translations say the soldiers, it just says they. It's, it's always they did it, right? That's blame shifting. And when you ever falling, find yourself falling into blame shifting, you're probably in self-denial. In my corporate days, way back when, I was a young CEO, and I was, you know, I was going to change everything in the company and all this stuff. And I had an older old salt veteran that he told me a story I've never forgotten. He said, yeah, there was a young CEO like you, Chip, and there was an old seasoned CEO that was retiring. And the old seasoned CEO said to the young CEO, I want to give you three envelopes, okay? And when you, when you make a mistake, when you do something really dumb, open the first envelope. And if you make another mistake, open the second envelope. And if you make a third mistake, open the last envelope. And so things went well on the job for about a year, and then uh, the CEO made a big blunder, and he opened the first envelope from the old CEO. You know what it said? He said, blame me. Blame the old CEO. So he did that. He said, yeah, this was the old CEO's fault. It's not my fault. And the board said, okay, that's, that's fine. And they moved on. Six months later, he made another mistake. So he opened the second envelope and it said, blame the board of directors. You inherited them. It's their fault. So he blamed the board of directors. They fired them all. And then sure enough, six months later, he made another mistake. He opened up the last envelope. You know what it said? Now you go prepare three envelopes. Why? Because he ran out of people to blame. See, when we blame shift, and it's, they're the problem, they're the one, good, good chance we're in self-denial. <clears throat> Here's another sign we're in self-denial. You get overly religious. God, God blesses everything you bless. You know, he always agrees with you. He, he never, you know, um, con con convicts you. Um, there was a pastor one time at a church, and he, his board was voting to do something that he didn't want done, and they voted unanimous to do it. So he said, well, let the record reflect that the board voted for this, but God and I voted against it. <clears throat> Whenever you start talking like that, it's a pretty good chance you're in self-denial. Where you get, God always, you know, Anne Lamott was one of my favorite writers, and she once said, you can be pretty sure you've cut God in your own image when God hates all the same people that you do. Right? It's, that's over, getting over to religious, bringing God into the, into the fray, is a good sign that you're in self-denial. So lack of significance leads to self-deception. What's the issue? What's the problem? I think the whole issue of this passage is in 1 Samuel 17. When Samuel says, it's a great line, he says, though you are small in your own eyes. Do you hear that? Though you are small in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you as king over Israel. Do you see what Samuel's saying? He's saying, you know, Saul, you were that kid hiding in the baggage that God made king. You were small, but God made you big. But now you're trying to make yourself big, and you're becoming very, very small. Saul forgot that he was anointed by grace. He, and Samuel just knew it in principle, that we're saved by grace. We know it in a person, in Jesus Christ. But Samuel knew the principle. He said, Saul, you weren't chosen king because you were smarter than other people. You weren't chosen king because you were wiser than people. God knew your blemishes and your imperfections. And God made you big. God anointed you as king over all of Israel. 
And now that you're trying to make yourself big, you're becoming very, very small. See, when Jesus heard the voice of God at his baptism, God said, you're my beloved child. With you, I'm well pleased. And you know what? That was enough. That was just one word of affirmation from the Heavenly Father was enough for Jesus for his entire life. And it should be enough for us. I went back this morning and I reread a sermon that my college chaplain did. He's the man that led me to Christ. And he was preaching one Sunday on Deuteronomy. I'll never forget it. In Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 9, I'll just read it to you. He was preaching on this passage. And he said, It was not because you were more numerous than any other people that the Lord set his heart on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath that he swore to his ancestors that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who maintains covenant loyalty with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And what Dr. Coleman Brown did that day was he set me free in that sermon because I realized all my life I was trying to earn God's love. You know, and I always knew I could do better. I could, could do better, Chip. That was my curse. Could have done better. Could have done better. And Coleman said, if you read Deuteronomy 7, it's a circular argument. God says, there's nothing you can do to make God love you better. God loves you just because. Just because. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. And there was something in hearing that him say that that set my heart free. That's what Saul had forgotten. You're not earning this, Saul, by building monuments to yourself, by going insane over your competition. He went crazy over David. You've been anointed by grace. This is God's gift to you. I love you just because, just because. See, in the world, people love us what? I'll love you if, right? I'll love you for this. I will love you if you do this. But God is the only one that says, no, I love you just because I love you. And that, my friend, should set us free. Pastor Terry's going to come and lead us to the table, uh, the table of grace together. Um, and I want to tell you another story. Anybody ever heard of a guy named Agostino Di Duccio? I'm stumping you guys today. This is like trivia. Um, Agostino Di Duccio was commissioned in 1463 by the city of Florence, Italy. They want, he was a great sculptor, and they wanted some biblical hero made out of, of, of the white marble from their quarries so that they could rival Rome and Greece. And they, they, contrasted, they contracted Agostino di Duccio to do it. He cut a 19-foot slab of white marble. However, he cut the slab too thin, and when they removed it, it fell and it left a deep fracture on one side. And so the sculptor said, I cannot use this, it's too damaged. And then he said, uh, let me get another marble, and the city wouldn't let him do it. So he walked off the job, and that fractured marble sat in Florence for 38 years as an embarrassment to human achievement. Until 38 years later, they contracted with a 26-year-old to do something with this marble. His name was Michelangelo. And he took that fractured marble, and he fashioned the statue of David that to this day is the most admired sculpture in the entire history of the world. See, we, we have a true and greater Michelangelo who came at Christmas into the world. God so loved the world. 
and he took those of us that are fractured and those of us with flaws and the Bible says he made us made us into God's own handiwork if you seek significance and approval elsewhere human achievement career etc that's ultimately what's going to give you significance you'll always be chased in the wind always but if you receive the blessing the anointing of grace the affirmation of God and remember you were small in your eyes but Jesus Christ became small to make you big and to make you great you know Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said there's nothing so liberating as to be so deeply loved that you can admit that you're flawed. Let me read these words to you and uh, we'll pray together and then come to the table. Here's what he wrote. The one who is alone with their sin is utterly alone. Christians might still be left to their loneliness because though they have fellowship with one another as devout people, they do not have fellowship as sinners. It's the grace of the gospel which is so hard for the religious to understand that it confronts us with the truth and says you are a sinner a great big desperate sinner now come as a sinner you are to God who loves you the gospel's message is liberation the mask you wear before human beings will do you no good before him he wants to see you as you are he wants to be gracious to you know the freedom of saying I am a desperate sinner and as I am God loves me much that's who we are friends broken pieces of marble but as we receive the grace of God, right? What did he say to Saul? He said, God doesn't want your sacrifices. He wants you. And he's come and paid a big price for it. So let's respond to that and give ourselves as we come to Christ's table together. Let's pray. God, um, help us not fall prey to this king who got it wrong, who start to build monuments to ourselves to look for affirmation in places where we can't finally get it to enter into self-deception and, and blame-shifting and, and over-religiosity is trying to cover up. Help us realize you see us all the way down and love us all the way through. Lift us with that story and that, that challenge and blessing of your amazing grace. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.